Welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News Chief White House Correspondent Jonathan Carl. And I'm ABC News Political Director Rick Klein. Rick, you're just back from Iowa looking good. Thank uh, you. And you're on your way to New Hampshire, right? Yeah, yeah. We, we, we've, we've literally gotten you here on this, this short window because your flight is... Tonight to, yeah. to New Hampshire. And we have a debate on Friday, ABC News, Friday night in New Hampshire. Uh, we just had State of the Union last night. Uh, we had the Super Bowl. We have the Oscars. It's like everything in the world is happening at once. Oh, by the way... It, What's going on with impeachment? Is that done yet, John? Yeah. So wait, before, I, I just oh. want to give you a little little uh, layout of the program. We are going to be talking to a Democratic activist who is a friend of the program, uh, somebody who, you know, has kind of been all over the party to a degree, yeah. uh, a Clinton campaign veteran, now very much uh, associated with the progressive left of the party. I, I'm going to reveal his name later, but one of the smarter observers of Democratic politics that I know so we're not so much going for him to where he is, but, but his kind of analysis of what the heck is going on post-Iowa. So we're going to hit Iowa, but we also had the State of the Union address, and uh, we have the, uh, the, the acquittal of the president in the Senate. We've got – I mean, this is one of the most consequential weeks of what? Ever. In the, uh, of February, in the, uh, at least. Uh, of February I, 2020. I, I, look, this is, this is the week where all these events are converging that – Lay the groundwork for this election season, yes, for the primaries as well as the general election. And if you believe all those people like to say this is the most consequential election of our lifetime, then guess what? This is where everything is set because right now we're at the starting gate. And I'll tell you, I've talked to a lot of Democrats in the last couple of days. They're kind of freaked out about where they stand right now. Yeah, it it seems all out panic, which seems like really early to be panicking. Early to be panicking, Uh, but – John, if they had witnessed the events of the last few days, Monday, the meltdown in Iowa, the utter inability of the party to even count the votes to say who won, even as we sit here on Wednesday, we don't have all the votes done. Combine that with a State of the Union on Tuesday night, which was a president in full, perhaps displaying the fullest extent of his political powers, and now a president set to be acquitted by the United States Senate. I feel like it's a pretty good week to be Donald Trump. And you didn't mention the Gallup poll. Uh, yes. so, so Gallup's got their uh, presidential approval uh, that they've been doing forever. And uh, he is at the high point of his presidency, uh, which is 49 percent, which might seem, you know, it's kind of you get your high point and you're still under 50. But 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 he's at he's he's at the high point of his presidency. And uh, if you look at it, one thing that struck me was the comparison. He's at a higher point now than Barack Obama was at this point in his presidency and that Bill Clinton was. And what happened to both of them? Pretty sure they got, became two-term presidents. They John. got reelected. Yeah. Now, uh, just, just you know, context, so fair to point out, uh, he's considerably lower than Ronald Reagan was at this point or George W. Bush. But but look, the, the I, I think I mentioned to you uh, during our last podcast that the Republicans, the White House, those close to the president were looking at the month of January is probably the best month of his presidency. I'm going to now strike that and say they're looking at this week, which is not over yet, as perhaps the best week of his presidency. But, but, but I just don't know, Rick. I think there are still um, – Republicans still face some of the institutional – some of the kind of – some of the challenges that they face that will not go away. The the, the, the demographic challenges, uh, the president has – did a bit in his State of the Union address to try to reach out to a degree, a little bit, you know, talk about, uh, you know, he had the, that, that great moment um, with the, uh, the, the, the 100-year-old Tuskegee Airmen. Um, he, you know, 
wanted to make it look like he was reaching out a bit. But this is this is still as divisive a president as we have ever seen, and um, somebody who has aggressively worked to alienate the the people that we've always thought were swing voters. And what I was struck by, John, is that as divisive as this president is, and as divided as the nation is. One thing that is not divided is the Republican base. I have ne- you've been in the chamber for a lot of State of the Unions, John. The hooping and this, the this holler. This was eleven. This was eleven. Eleven. Oh my and, and, god! And, and that includes uh, in there twice with George W. Bush, uh, several times with uh, Barack Obama, and now uh, every single one with so uh, Trump. I heard that I something I'd never heard before in, a, in a State of the Union. Four more years. That chant Four that broke Four more up. years. You know, I, I, I got to tell you, it's you know, you watch a different speech when you're in the chamber. So, so I'm I'm in the chamber, it kind of off behind the president to the left, front row of that um, you know the balcony area, right adjacent to the first lady's box. It's really quite a vantage point to see a speech. In some ways. Uh, there's a disadvantage because you don't see the same speech that the rest of America is seeing. I don't see the cutaways. I don't see what you're seeing on television. I don't see the uh, you know the close-ups uh, of of Nancy Pelosi. I can kind of turn my head and see. I mean, I could see her ripping up the speech and all that, but I didn't. I couldn't see all her you know the jaw dropping, the the facial expressions that you see so clearly on television. But you do get a sense of that hall, and I, I got to tell you, I mean, it was weird. To be fair, a year ago. Uh, not so much um, uh, in his in his first one, which was little, looked a little more traditional. Um, but you you see a president come in to the House chamber. That is the usual moment of unity. He's welcomed yeah. in by the sergeant at arms. Both sides politely applaud. Perhaps his side applauds uh, more more vigorously. But it's like you're applauding the president. He's coming in and all that. From the moment he walks in there, Democrats are you know. Sitting on their hands. Yeah. And you see the extent to which he boxes them in with some of the rah-rah American uh, American language. It's difficult to hear those lines in a vacuum and not applaud it. You know why Democrats aren't, because they hear that and they think that's a misleading claim. That's not true. Uh, he's trying to goad right. us into a moment right there. They know why they're doing it, but, man, it televises poorly. And, man, it's difficult for a politician to resist that temptation. And the, re- the reaction on television, if you're listening to the weight of that speech, you hear the president touting accomplishment after accomplishment. And, John, you and I know we can fact-check them forever and show why that isn't true or that is— a, a, But that, there are accomplishments. But there are accomplishments. I mean, wh- wh- whether or not he deserves credit or not, we can have that debate. But, but look, uh, you know, th- there are objectively— Things where this country is better than it was three years ago, uh, as as would always be the case at any point in the presidency. Yeah. Of course, there, there's objectively that, and I think that chant of four more years echoed particularly uh, in I a mean, hollow. We, I, just to be clear, we've never seen anything remotely right. like that. Right. It just doesn't happen. This is not a political rally. This is a state of the union. The president will. It's obviously always a political speech. You know, you might needle your opponents a bit, but you're, you know, the, the point is some unity. But that that four more years tr- started before he started speaking, and I think, but it, after he refused to shake Nancy Pelosi's hand, and 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 before Nancy Pelosi decides to rip up rip the speech up at the speech. end, it is an incredible I mean, I, moment. But John, I think that that the the chance of four more years particularly hurt the ears of Democrats because I don't think there's any point in the recent history of this presidency where four more years looked like a likelier possibility. His reelection chances are higher. Let's frankly say it because of this and because the Democrats cannot get their acts together. They can't 
count the votes in Iowa, the utter madness and, and insanity uh, out of the first contest that we don't know who actually won the Iowa caucuses. Uh, it's very likely, John, that there are two winners of the Iowa caucuses. Uh, and those two winners represent vastly different visions of the party. Uh, that and one of them is not Joe Biden, am I right? One of and I was which, which there. Is, yes, and neither Which is of the them. candidate that, that, that uh, yes. the president seemed to fear the most, the people around him uh, feared the most, uh, worked so hard to, uh, to knock down. And he's he's in fourth right now in Iowa, and and this is and that's the guy running on electability, right? Is yes, in fourth place. Okay. Yes, yes, right. that's the guy running on electability, and you have, uh, frankly, big concerns about the electability of either Bernie Sanders, a self-described democratic socialist who the president is already geared up to run against, and Mayor Pete Buttigieg, thirty-eight years old, openly gay, uh, veteran, uh, never been anywhere on the national stage. As Joe Biden has pointed out, he got you know in his lifetime until Iowa, he got about nine thousand votes. Uh, this is a brand new figure to the scene. It challenges, um, I think, conventional wisdom of what a president could be even more than Barack Obama in certain ways, the guy that was the, 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 now the former mayor of South Bend. So to have those two now, the, the focal the other points mayor? of the party. The, uh, the other mayor? Yeah, the other mayor in the race. Back me up on this. Oh, that guy. Yeah. The, the, the rich guy. Yeah, the, yeah, the rich yeah. Guy. So I, look, I, I've talked a lot to the Bloomberg campaign, and they made two calculations uh, that said that this could work. The, one, chaos. In the Democratic Party. We don't know who the front runner is. We don't know what's going on. Second, Bernie Sanders. Again. Boom, boom, boom. There you go. Both of those things have happened at once. And I talked to a senior campaign aide over there yesterday. They have put their foot on the gas. They're expanding their spending. Now, they thought that they wouldn't really be part of the conversation until Super Tuesday. They think their time is now. And that's astounding because there's still three more contests where his name isn't even on the ballot. Uh, But Democrats are going to be shopping around and worried about exactly what is going to happen in this primary process. What's that campaign headquarters like? Oh, my God, John. John, it's I gotta say it's it's actually nicer than your office, which is saying I mean, you got a he's <laughs> got a really nice, he's got a really, yeah. I mean, yeah, a really yeah, nice office, true. but man, it is a humming machine of activity, acre upon acre of people hard at work, uh, making phone calls in Super Tuesday states, testing out ads and digital ads, dining on the food that Bloomberg caters in for his staff. Um, I, I spied out of the corner of my eye the mayor himself there in that open seating plan in the middle of a huge room surrounded by volunteers and strategists and the like, and I have never seen more people working on a campaign, certainly this early, maybe ever at any point than I saw at that headquarters just in Manhattan. And he's got offices around the country as well. I mean, this free is just, food at a campaign is revolutionary. And it's good food. I was told. I mean, I was told. I mean, you like, might get some pizzas when you're like, you know, <laughs> the end stages. But... Yeah, no, no. I mean, this is, this is, I know lots of campaign staffers that dine on McDonald's, but this is good stuff. And Bloom, Michael Bloomberg is spending uh, records amounts of money on the airwaves, $300 million already. How many Again, people are working over there? What, what has he got? It was hundreds. It was hundreds. It was, and, I, and, and, and I, I hear that they, so they, get issued, they get issued laptops or tablets I, or I what? I mean, I didn't get into the equipment specifications, but it is a, it is a, uh, a tech company. It's like working company. for a tech it company. Is, yeah, it's like it going is. to work for a mini Google or something. And they're putting together a tech operation that they say will be second only maybe to the president's, maybe sur- surpass the president's. I'll tell you, Joe Biden couldn't get organizers in precincts, right? He didn't have actual people to show up in the precincts in a place he knew the the the, the, uh, the the lay of the land in very well. Michael Bloomberg can be and will be everywhere because he is going to pay money to do it. And they are uh, literally no way that he could spend his fortune down on this campaign. Even if you were to spend a billion, two billion, that's nothing to Michael Bloomberg. And he is spending like it. All right. We got to take a quick break. We're going to come back with our uh – like I said, one of the smartest Democratic operatives that we know, friend of the podcast. We'll be back in a moment. 
Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. And as teased, we are joined by our Democratic operative, who I promised you is one of the smartest Democratic operatives we know, a friend of the podcast. And it is, quick, Brian Fallon. Brian Fallon, veteran of the Hillary Clinton campaign, uh, the executive director of Demand Justice, uh, former Justice Department spokesperson, former spokesperson for the Democratic leadership in the Senate. Brian, thank you for joining us. I always love to be on a powerhouse politics podcast. But we like to have you, and we want you to try to help us figure out what the hell happened in Iowa, but more importantly, what next. And I, I also, uh, as somebody who has attended uh, State of the Union addresses in the past, want to want to get your take on that. And and before you leave, we do have a breaking sports news story that we have to ask you about it, and it's not Mookie Betts. Um, so let's start with Iowa. Brian, what the hell? Uh, yeah, there's no way to sugarcoat it. It was a debacle. Um, I think there was a lot of pressure within the Democratic Party already to get rid of Iowa's place in the calendar, and I think it seems like beta complete at this point that Iowa having a caucus to kick off the nominating process will not be the in, will not be the default in the future. I, I used to think that, you know, there's rightly a lot of attention on the lack of diversity in a state like Iowa, and uh, but I used to think that it would take an incumbent president to change the calendar. Um, so I thought it maybe if a Democrat wins the White House in 2020, and you know theoretically that person will have to go through a pro forma nominating process in 2024, they would have the juice politically to be able to stand up to Iowa and say we have to change things. But I thought that if if it was an open race again, if you know God forbid the Democrats lose to Donald Trump in 2020, I thought you know maybe you know Iowa could sort of stick it out because the candidates um, would not be much upside for candidates running in an open race to to challenge Iowa that way. But I think no matter what happens at this point, um, Iowa's place in the process is probably um, going extinct. Uh, even if you didn't have the snafus with the reporting. There was just so many anecdotal evidence of just gimmicks and coin flips and gamesmanship in terms of, you know, um, what happens on second alignment to try to deprive people of delegates. It's just not a way to pick a president. So you add in the lack of diversity and the lack of representativeness of the Democratic base. And I just think that its days are numbered. Okay. well, the thing I I was giving Rick a hard time about this because he tries to – explain to our broadcast network how this stuff works. Uh, and I was challenging him, explain to me how a candidate can win first alignment, second alignment, and then lose. I mean, yeah, so you have, it, is, it, is, it is a... Yeah, so that's, that's a possibility for Bernie. Um, yeah. <clears throat> yeah, it's I mean, a possibility it, it, it's for even Bernie a probability, right? I mean, that seems to be, that's, where, that's, that's where the numbers are so that's far. That's where the numbers so. are right now. Yeah. You, you can't explain that right to a normal now person. Seven. Um, well, it's not unlike, you know, it's obviously different, um, but it's not unlike the Electoral College when we get to the general election. So you can win. You can have it's the most people show up. the Electoral College, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, you can have the most people show up in a given precinct. You can have the most people show up. And then the way that state delegate, delegate equivalents are awarded, you know, there's a lot of there's rounding. And so you could have, you know, dozens of additional supporters in the room compared to the second place finisher. And you may emerge from that with the same amount of state delegate equivalents. And then, so that's one factor. And then the way that uh, state delegate equivalents are awarded in terms of precincts is not uniform. So uh, rural areas, for instance, punch above their weight. They have um, a higher share of the state delegate equivalents compared to uh, the population in those areas. And so, um, yeah, you can have screwy outcomes that uh, where Bernie 
is likely to have had the most support in terms of raw numbers on both first and second alignment, but Buttigieg can end up first in state delegate equivalents. And that is the reason that sort of discrepancy is part of the reason why the Sanders people, among others, pressed for this reform where all three data sets would be published um, on caucus night because they wanted to be able to tell a story of, you know, at least winning the quote-unquote popular vote, even if they come up short on state delegate equivalent. So that was one of the factors that contributed to the newness of this process for a lot of the um, people that were carrying out um, the reporting for the first time. They had to report three sets of numbers instead of one. And uh, so that, I think, contributed to the, to the mess. So yeah, so I, I've agreed that last dance in Des Moines, we can we can we can we can bury the caucuses. But Brian, the the fallout, uh, the combination of things, one of the the utter mess that that the Iowa was after all the tens of million dollars that bumped into uh, that, that were pumped in there, uh, with the fact that we're walking away with Bernie Sanders, the the self described Democratic Socialist at age seventy eight, uh, as uh, the, probably the winner of the of the popular vote, and I think the the odds on favorite to win the New Hampshire primary a few days from now, Mayor Pete Buttigieg, this new face to the scene totally untested out there uh, as uh, probably or potentially the winner of the actual caucus vote. Joe Biden coming in what appears to be a distant fourth. Rank the state of Democratic unease as you see it, Brian, on a scale of one to nuclear meltdown. Where do Democrats, where are Democrats' minds right now uh, as to how this primary season is likely to play out? Well, I I wouldn't, I would I think that people should maintain perspective with respect to the reporting snafus. I mean, right now it is a mess. Right, but leave, leave that aside. I, I, I feel like yeah. I add to the optics, but, but so, leave that aside. So I, with the state of the race. Right. So I think that more what's what's um, potentially more impactful in the long term than the reporting snafus was turnout in the Iowa caucuses. Um, so you had. Candidates like Bernie Sanders going around predicting that ter- overall turnout in Iowa was going to eclipse the record level in 2008. And that sort of made sense to a lot of people because, you know, the stakes couldn't be higher than removing Trump from office. You yeah, saw a huge turnout. In, yeah. in, you, had, you had huge turnout in 2018 with people sort of taking the first opportunity to sort of send a message against Trump. And so you would have thought that Democrats could not, be, could not possibly be more energized to turn out caucus and, and yeah, as you just mentioned, you had five or maybe even six, if you count Andrew Yang, different campaigns that were, had really invested and were doing turn programs in the state um, uh, versus in 2016 when you had only two candidates um, and two campaigns turning out people. So with all those door knocking, all that voter contact, um, to end up with voter turnout that's you know pretty much close or in line with 2016, which was a rather pedestrian level by historic standards in, in Iowa, that's... That's somewhat surprising. I think there's a, you can speculate about why that might be. I think one factor may have been that the caucus overall got less attention in the run up to it. There's been studies on, you know, um, times on the time devoted to uh, the run up to Iowa on, on the evening newscast, for instance, because you had impeachment, which was sucking up a lot of oxygen. I think, though, another factor that, you know, we have to grapple with is that there's a lot of the, the field is seems very unsettled and you have not had any candidate yet that has sort of made gains beyond the constituency that they sort of entered the race with. Um, it, no one has yet emerged as sort of a broad coalition candidate that can um, string together support um, from various aspects of the Democratic primary electorate. Uh, that will inevitably happen at some point. Somebody will become that coalition candidate uh, that steps beyond the, the initial sort of basis support that they have. But right now, I think a lot of Democrats are trying to suss out this question of, all right, even if I have an electability consideration in mind, what should that translate to in terms of who I support? And people don't have a clear theory. And in the 
second realignment in a lot of places, you saw a lot of screwy sort of like thought processes where people that ideologically seemed like mismatches, you know, they were they were caucusing with people that you would never would have guessed on second alignment. So I think that there's an unsettledness to the sort of overall field, and that may also have contributed to you know the, the the lower overall turnout, but hopefully that will improve as the contest as the calendar moves forward, um, because you you do want to see more people participate in the process. And okay, so I think that to the extent meltdown. if Bernie comes up short on state delegate equivalents, I think you know he may have won the popular vote, but I don't think he won it by as much as he probably thought he would. I think he thought the turnout level was going to be much higher. So, but but Brian, what what what? What is a Democrat to forget do? Forget Iowa here. Like, yeah, leave picture. Iowa. Forget that. The state of play right now. Are you not worried? You, you, you feel like you're going to be fine? Like, look at it on the other side. Do you have that perspective? Because I'll Trump's tell you. approval rating a lot of Democrats, is higher than it's ever been. A lot of Democrats I've talked to in the last couple of days are kind of freaked out. Am I, am I wrong in judging that? I mean, maybe, you, maybe you're the voice of reason in this, right? You're, you're, Brian, you're the, you're the, you're the old hand that can tell them to calm down. But, I, still think, I, still think that, I, I still think that there's multiple candidates in the field that could beat Trump. Uh, I think I do think people, you know, should wake up to how difficult it is going to be to beat him. I think that, you know, the um, the economy is in decent shape. Um, his numbers have uh, stabilized, uh, notwithstanding impeachment. Um, and, you know, he's shown, uh, uh, you know, I thought that the Super Bowl ad, for instance, and making the play to uh, black voters on criminal justice reform was was somewhat um Adept. I thought it was very cynical, considering you know that his own Justice Department is undermining that that very law. Um, but I thought that it showed a dexterity from a campaign perspective. So, you know, <clears throat> he's going to be very viable, and it's going to be a close race no matter who the nominee is. But I do think that there's three or maybe four people that that could potentially emerge and, and beat him. And the polling, the head-to-head polling, um, suggests that that there's uh, you know anywhere from four to five candidates who beat him head to head. So I don't I'm not getting stressed in in that in that sense. I do think though that I can't tell you right now who the heck is going to win. I think it could be just as there's three four, three four maybe five candidates that could beat him head to head. I think you could still end up with three or four different people that could end up prevailing in this. And so I think that the freakout is probably just a lot of people's sort of assumptions have been. Upended, you know, Biden. I think people weren't expecting him to win Iowa, but fourth, maybe fifth place, depending on how the remaining uh, uh, non-counted um, results go. Um, you know, he could finish fifth behind Klobuchar once you once you count those satellite locations. And so, if he has, if, he, if Biden, somebody like Biden stumbles again in New Hampshire, I think people will the freakout will continue because people just like to feel like they know how things are going to play out. And I think right now it's very hard to guess who's going to emerge uh, on the Democratic side. Okay, quick question. Uh, Biden made electability kind of his central message. Looking at what happened here, looking at state of the campaigns, who is more electable at this point, Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden? Um, well, in the Democratic primary, I think that the no, Iowa, who, 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 who's 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 the most electable in the general election? Bernie Sanders. Well, or Joe you know, Biden? I'm not. I'm some. I'm somebody that actually I'm intrigued by the Bernie Sanders theory of electability in the general. I think that. Uh, there's a very credible argument um, that that many of the same "quote unquote" Obama Trump voters that that Joe Biden holds himself out to be the a candidate who can uniquely attract them. I think there's a decent theory that Bernie Sanders um, can attract some of those same voters. I think Bernie is showing um, more so than 2016. I don't think I don't think he's fully the air yet, and that's you see that in the polling in South Carolina. But I think Bernie has shown more potential with uh, communities of color 
to mobilize uh, black voters than he did in 2016. So I do think that there's a potential for him to sort of be a coalition candidate in that respect. Um, and there's a, you know, I know that Trump will lift up the socialism argument if Bernie's ever the nominee, but I think that there's an authenticity factor to Bernie that might override that. In other words, um, with Trump, Trump gets a lot of authenticity points from voters um, uh, on account of his willingness to be so overtly racist and say things that uh, you might term politically incorrect. Um, but his willingness to sort of, um, you know, trash norms and just behave uh, in a way that you'd never expect a president to behave in a weird way sort of helps him from an authenticity standpoint. Uh, somebody like Bernie Sanders, you know, if you were if if you were trying to draw up a general election candidate from scratch, you probably wouldn't say, "Hey, let's have somebody that that, that you know ha that calls himself a democratic socialist. Um, let's let's have that person be the nominee." So Brian just does it. He probably makes the argument. I think it actually helps him with voters seem authentic and true to himself. And so I, I think that might actually mitigate the Republicans' ability to sort of like weaponize that as an issue. So speaking of weaponization, just moments ago in New Hampshire, Joe Biden said a couple of really interesting things. He went further than he has gone in, in attacking both of the apparent Iowa winners. He said if, if Sanders wins the nomination, every Democrat will have to carry the label Senator Sanders has chosen for himself, that of a socialist. And he said this, I do believe it's a risk, to be straight up with you, for this party to nominate someone who's never held an office higher than mayor of a town of 100,000 people in Indiana. I do believe it's a risk. He's going four square at electability. Is Joe Biden wrong? Well, I think what that tells you most of all is right now, for the first time, it's like Joe Biden is running like somebody who's running from behind. Um, so you, you, up till now, he's mostly run a Rose Garden type campaign. Uh, he's not been very selective, if at all, in terms of engaging with the other candidates. Um, he's not been willing to attend a lot of the same cattle call events that the candidates go to. He's, he's tried to sort of portray himself as, um, you know, he is the former vice president, and he's tried to comport himself that way. Now, post-Iowa, he's got to be a little scrappier. He's got to be more explicit. He's got to be more overt in criticizing and making the case against some of the people that outperformed him in Iowa, because it's he gets beaten by those same guys in New Hampshire, I think people are really going to start to worry for whether his support in a state like South Carolina will hold. Um, <clears throat> I, I think those arguments are already out there. So to the extent that those arguments are going to be, are, are going to carry the day, uh, I think that they're already baked into the cake. Um, even if Biden's not been voicing them, you know, those have been the sort of implied criticisms of, of Buttigieg and Bernie already. So I'm not sure how much traction there is to be gained from having Biden directly voice those those um, criticisms. But I do think that the scrappiness of seeing him engage with the other candidates, that might help him just because people do like the comeback story. So if I were them, I'd be leaning into the fact that, yeah, we did, we did uh, underperform in Iowa, um, but now I've got it all on the line. I need you. And New Hampshire does have a, sort of a tradition of being willing to go counter to what Iowa does and not let Iowa uh, speak for them. And so I think if you tried to lean into a comeback narrative and act like, you know, the stakes are very high, you know, he could be rewarded for that. But I, I don't think that those particular arguments are novel um, or that they weren't already on the minds of people that decided nonetheless to support Bernie or, or Buttigieg in Iowa. OK, so so, Brian, before you go, um, uh, one last thing here. And you mentioned the Rose Garden. So um, that's my segue to this. I'm sure you've seen the uh, uh, filing, the petition that Pete Rose has filed with uh, with. Rob Manfred of Major League Baseball, 
um, saying that uh, he should be considered for induction into the Hall of Fame and reinstituted into uh, uh, readmitted into baseball. And he makes a very, I think, a very interesting argument here. This is obviously not a new thing for Pete Rose. He's been for 30 years trying to get back into baseball. But he is saying, in light of the fact that Manfred recently opted not to punish players guilty uh, for uh, major game-changing, potentially, violations like sign-stealing the Houston Astros, how could you not do this? He says... Uh, the lawyers, Rose's lawyers, say that the that the uh, lifetime ban is quote vastly disproportionate when compared uh, to the non penalties for the players on the Houston Astros, and obviously compared to uh, all those that were caught using steroids. And the, the they say in this filing, there cannot be one set of rules for Mr. Rose and another set for everybody else. It makes a pretty decent argument there, doesn't he? Yeah, well, I'm somebody who thinks that people should probably be in the Hall of Fame at this point. Headline. Um, I don't think that we should. I think we should use the Astros example as permission to sort of have a race to the bottom where, you know, baseball takes an anything-goes approach to disciplining players. But I think that if you're trying to get it right and meet somewhere in the middle, then the Astros players have gotten punished not enough, and Pete Rose has been punished, you know, plenty. Um, you know, there has been – he's been kept out long enough. He's paid a price. His reputation's taken a hit. I think, you know, now cooler heads could prevail. They could let him in. I do think that they ought to come up with some sort of strategy for how to uh, discipline the players somehow. I know that it's, it'd probably be hard to enforce. And, um, it'd be hard to get to the bottom of who's involved and who isn't. But the idea that they're just going to punish management and not punish any of the players that were involved, I think that that is squirrely. And it does open baseball up to, you know, allegations of arbitrariness from people like Pete Rose. All right. I think in general, you know, I think that Rogers should be in Clemens. I think that I think the steroid arrow players, after being you know kept off the book, kept out of the hall for several years by the in the Hall of Fame balloting, you know, they've paid a price. I think ultimately they should be let in. I mean, it's sort of the Hall of Fame. I think at, at a certain point, sort of loses some of its cachet if some of the better players in the history of the game. Are, I mean, the are, tough are, ones are, are you know excluded in mass. Yeah, Barry Bonds and, and Roger Clemens, arguably, you know, the best pitcher, one of the top pitchers anyway, and best hitter, one of the top hitters ever. Uh, look, Brian, thank you for joining us in Powerhouse Politics. We'll catch up with you down the road. Thanks, guys. Great. Look forward to watching you. All right, bye. Right. And that's all the time we have for Powerhouse Politics. Uh, thank you to our entire Powerhouse Politics team. We will be back with you from the campaign trail next week. <laughs> 